Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine. I'm Sasha Koka. And on today's show, we're saying goodbye to 2021 and cheers to 2022. So to go along with your New Year's toasts, we've got a show about drinks and cocktails that got their start here in California. People always drank whatever they had around. And, you know, uh, when America was being settled, there was a lot of gin here. It was 1952. And it was a a dark and stormy night, November 10th to be exact. We have a secret proprietary ingredient that we put inside of our cocktail that we don't tell anybody what it is. Uh, I'll let you try it on its own, but you can tell me what you think it is, but I won't tell you if you guess right. There are some fascinating California history lessons in these stories, but if you're not a drinker and you're sober, we totally respect it if you'd rather not tune in. We're going to start by rewinding back to the gold rush, to a pale, foamy drink made with Pisco, which is a highly potent Peruvian brandy. The Pisco Sour was invented, as you might expect, in Peru back in the 1940s. But many years before that, 19th century San Francisco was gripped by a craze for another Pisco concoction, one that maybe should have come with a health warning. Carly Severn first brought us this story back in 2019 as part of our series Golden State Plate about iconic food and drinks invented here in California. It's happy hour in San Francisco's Comstock Saloon in the city's North Beach neighborhood. And Anthony Kocek, the bartender, is making a cocktail that was invented in this very city, on this same street, in fact, over 100 years earlier. Add a generous helping of ice, and then you want to vigorously shake it. Double strain, chill black. It's called the Pisco Punch. You don't see it on many menus in this town, or anywhere, really. It's not frothy, like a Pisco Sour, and when it's strained into its chilled antique glass, it looks like pale liquid gold. We finish it off with doing a really nice lemon expression from a twist. Dig deep in there, you can see the pith is really white. But in the 1800s, this wasn't just a drink. Ordering Pisco Punch was a status symbol, and it said everything about the newfound wealth and ambition of Gold Rush San Francisco. Tech may be what floods this town with cash nowadays, but back then it was gold. Prospectors streamed into the city with money to burn and tastes to be satisfied. And they found a mixology culture that wouldn't be out of place today, says cocktail historian Duggan McDonald. Early San Francisco was the fastest growing richest city in the world, and it was a port city and it had access to so many amazing, wonderful ingredients, right? And when you have access, when you have wealth, what do you spend it on? But amazing things to put on your body and in your mouth, and that's food and drink. Every scene needs its headquarters. And in 1880s San Francisco, that place was a bar 
called the Bank Exchange and Billiard Saloon. It was here that the Pisco Punch was born, on the site where the Transamerica Pyramid now stretches into the San Francisco sky. And this saloon was no dive. A grand marble bar, lovely chandeliers. Uh, It opened up in 1853, frankly, as a testament to the West. And behind the bar was the bank saloon's very own celebrity bartender, a Scotsman named Duncan Nicholl. He was the guy serving Pisco Punch to San Francisco's movers and shakers for an eye-watering price. In today's inflation, that would be $25 per cocktail. Today, CEOs battle over technology patents. But back then, Duncan Nichols' big triumph was acquiring the intellectual property rights to the bank's Pisco Punch recipe when he bought the place. It was that big. But what was so special about this drink? What was in it? For a start, there was the Pisco itself. Pisco is a distilled fermented grape juice from Peru with extreme potency. And San Francisco was wild for it. But the stuff from Peru is single distilled. So it's distilled to proof, meaning it's not distilled to a higher proof and then cut with water. That kind of Pisco is more concentrated than anything else on this planet. I mean, it gets into your bones. Peruvian traders had long been bringing Pisco the four and a half thousand miles north up to the San Francisco Bay. And then gold arrived. And then more Peruvians came up because, obviously, they had a relationship with this territory, but they also had a relationship with mining. And then you add some pineapple. Now, pineapples arrived into San Francisco on many of the same ships that brought the Pisco. And they were a luxury item. And imagine, only in the richest city in the world would you then take that sweet and magical fruit and put it in a cocktail, for God's sake. Duggan tells me that San Francisco store owners would take whole pineapples straight from the docks and place them in their windows. And that pineapple became the international symbol of hospitality and luxury. Along with some lime and some syrup, Pisco Punch boasted a mystery ingredient that the owner, Duncan, would never divulge. A secret addition that, along with the Pisco, made this cocktail so mythically strong that the saloon apparently only allowed two per customer. No man but one knows what is in it. I have a theory it is compounded of the shavings of cherub's wings, the glory of a tropical dawn, the red clouds of sunset, and fragments of lost epics by dead masters. That's what author Rudyard Kipling, no less, wrote about the Pisco Punch. It makes a gnat fat an elephant. Is what another anonymous fan wrote at the time. And maybe that mystery ingredient might explain why writers were just so effusive in their love for it. That special something might have been Van Mariani, a fortified wine from Bordeaux, The principal ingredient in that, until it got banned, was coca leaves from Peru. In essence, cocaine. 19th century California, specifically San Francisco writing, you look at Twain and Kipling and all these guys, and there's a lot of energy in their prose, uh, a lot of hyperbole, shall we say. Uh, So I'm not surprised that these guys had a few Pisco punches with their coca leaves in them. But as with all crazes, things must come to an end. And in the case of the Pisco Punch, that end was Prohibition in 1919. Like so many bar owners, Duncan Nickel was forced to close his bank exchange saloon. 
And not long after, he took his mystery Pisco Punch recipe to his grave. And San Francisco's hottest cocktail became a forgotten legend. Until 50 years later, in the 1970s, when a version of the bank's original recipe was unearthed. Places like the Comstock Saloon began bringing it back, with a spot of guesswork around that secret ingredient. And here, just down the street from where the bank once stood, they're still serving up several Pisco punches a night. And as my bartender tells me, like Duncan Nickel over a century ago, they still can't resist a little mystery. We have a secret proprietary ingredient that we put inside of our cocktail that we don't tell anybody what it is. Uh, I'll let you try it on its own, but you can tell me what you think it is, but I won't tell you if you guess right. Sounds like a challenge, right? Just go easy. For The California Report, I'm Carly Seven. Some of you may be ringing in the new year with a martini. Shaken monster. Of course, that's James Bond, and he made the martini his signature drink. It's so iconic when you think about those neon signs with a funnel-shaped glass in front of old-school bars. The martini even has its own emoji. But did you know the martini has roots right here in California? Where exactly the cocktail was invented, how it got its name, even what it's made of? That's where it gets muddy. Bianca Taylor first brought us this story in 2018 for our series Golden State Plate. All right, I'm going to make a martini cocktail the way we do here at Bull Valley Roadhouse. And um, it's two parts of this Old Tom Gin, which is a sweeter gin. So I'll put two ounces of this gin in there. I'm with bar manager Tamir Benjalom at the Bowl Valley Roadhouse in this tiny East Bay town of Port Costa. And then we'll do exactly half of that. One ounce of our Torino Vermouth blend. What's the first cocktail you learned how to make? It was the martini. Really? It was the martini. Tamir makes a mean drink, but when I start asking him more and more questions about where the martini comes from, he tells me I really just need to get in my car and drive 20 minutes down to Martinez. I'm standing on the corner of Masonic and Alhambra Streets, and there's a plaque on a giant boulder in a parking lot, basically. And it says, birthplace of the martini. So not only does Martinez lay claim to the drink with a plaque, it throws an annual martini festival, and the drink's origin story is all over the city's official website. But Gabriel Close, a San Francisco bartender who collects and studies old cocktail recipes, he says there's actually a lot of controversy about where and who invented the martini. These origins are so murky, you know, a drink that's not like entered into the public record. According to the plaque, the Martina story goes like this. On this site in 1874, a bartender served up the first martini when a miner came into his saloon with a fistful of nuggets and asked for something special. He was served a Martinez special. After three or four drinks, however, the Z would get very much in the way. The drink consisted of two-thirds gin, one-third vermouth, a dash of orange bitters poured over crushed ice and served with an olive. But Gabriel tells me a really similar story. 
It also takes place in the 1870s, but this time it happens in San Francisco. It starts with a miner who comes into a bar at the Occidental Hotel with a sack of gold, and he wants to trade it in for a bottle of whiskey. So bartender Jerry Thomas gives him the whiskey and a special drink that he just made up off the cuff. He called it the Martinez. In 1887, the recipe for the Martinez was documented for the very first time in Jerry Thomas's Bartender's Guide. And his recipe looks a lot like the classic martini. And here we've got the old Tom gin and the vermouth. This is one part old Tom to two parts vermouth. Jennifer Callio is an award-winning bartender and a self-proclaimed cocktail nerd. I like the martini because I love um, I love all the stories, and I love that there's this air of mystery to it. H.L. Mencken called the martini the only American invention as perfect as the sonnet. She loves martinis so much, she's made a spreadsheet that documents all of the martinis' variations that she's found over the years. Yeah, it's like 469 entries. Some of the drinks are made with the exact same recipe, but they have different names. We've got the Chris Racket Club, the Dewey, the Dry Martini, the Marguerite, and the Nutting. All those are made with the same ingredients, one-to-one gin and dry vermouth with orange bitters. So which one is the right one? There is nothing empirical here. There are people writing other people's recipes. There are people naming drinks after themselves or after the bars they work in. This explains why it's so hard to nail down the difference between a Martinez and a Martini, let alone figure out where it was invented. But regardless of what it was called, it's very obvious that a martini-style gin drink was really popular at the turn of the century. People always drank whatever they had around. And, you know, uh, when America was being settled, there was a lot of gin here. And that wasn't an accident. Gin's popularity can be traced back to prohibition. When the manufacturing and selling of alcohol became illegal in 1920, people got creative. Have you ever heard of bathtub gin? Well, that was literally people making gin in their bathtub. It was cheap and easy, and there was a lot of it. So when President Roosevelt repealed Prohibition 13 years later, there was plenty of gin around, just waiting to be drunk. The decisive vote of the 36th state against Prohibition is happy news for the grain raisers of the United States and for many others throughout the land. Roosevelt uh, uh, cheers in the end of Prohibition with nothing but a martini. So that's a big deal right there. Prohibition really kind of gave the martini the leg up. I mean, it is just like this granddaddy of cocktails. And this granddaddy came from here, the San Francisco Bay Area. Well, it probably came from here. In 1983, the San Francisco Court of Historical Review, a group with no actual legal authority, they held a mock trial over the origin of the martini. And they determined that their city was the cocktail's rightful birthplace. But not to be outdone, a mock court in Martinez overturned that ruling shortly after. When I press Jennifer, Tamir, and Gabriel on where the martini was invented, no one is willing to say anything definitively. But finally, Jennifer gives it to me straight. So do you think it's important that people know where the martini came from? Oh, God, no. No. No one, no one needs to know any of this. I mean, if you're, if you're enjoying yourself at my bar, that's really all that I care about. Cheers to that. For the California Report, I'm Bianca Taylor. Plenty of places around California are known for their wine. Think Napa, Sonoma, the Central Coast. 
but one place that's not, Tehama County, south of Redding. It's better known for cattle and olives. But in 2015, reporter Lisa Morehouse trekked off the beaten path to meet a group of vintners at a place where winemaking and prayer go hand in hand. Okay, that's it. Perfect. The two people working at this winery in the tiny town of Vina, California, seem like an odd pair. So this is a game plan, Christopher. I'm going to turn this on and the pump. One is winemaker Amy Sinceri. We're basically filtering this wine and getting it ready for bottling. The other is brother Christopher, a monk. He grew up in Sonoma County's wine country, but never thought he'd make this stuff. Then a religious conversion led him here, to the Abbey of New Clairvaux in 2004, just a few years after the monks first planted grapes. Actually, the uh, the winery and my vocation have grown up together. The 20 brothers of New Clairvaux are Trappist monks. They're cloistered. They rarely leave the property and live in a walled-off cluster of buildings. You know, there's people who don't understand that. <laughs> they think, what are you guys doing? I mean, there's so many needs in the world, and here you are, you know, wearing your pajamas, singing in a barn. <laughs> They wear long white robes called habits. Their simple plywood church is beautifully designed but unadorned, and they spend hours every day in silence and prayer. I really believe that it's really important that there are people who are totally 100% devoted to prayer. But the monks need to work to survive. They're self-sufficient and don't take donations. And these brothers say physical work and spiritual growth go hand in hand. You're tired and, you know, you're working with your brothers and there's always somebody's got one way they want to do things and their tensions can grow up. So, you know, you can almost measure your progress by how you react or how poorly you react. It's a, it's a real barometer. Winemaking is part of their religious heritage. Trappists are a type of Cistercian monk, and going back a thousand years, they planted grapes all over Europe. Dressed in a work uniform of jeans and a navy sweatshirt, Brother Raphael prunes Albarino and Tempranillo vines in the Abbey's St. James Vineyard. What you wanted is only two clusters. He grew up in Ecuador and looked for the right religious order all of his adult life. He came to New Clairvaux 18 years ago, but Brother Raphael had never grown grapes before. Now he manages this vineyard. One thing that has been extremely helpful for me is to know myself by pruning. By pruning, you know, removing away what is not good. You remove the extra clusters. You remove the extra leaves in the canopy. For what? For the remaining grapes to have space to develop beautifully. And it's the same with me, you know, in my interior life, so I need to remove what is superfluous. He has a lot to contend with on the vineyard. The soil here in Vina isn't really right for wine grapes, and in the spring and summer, the heat never lets up, even at night. Given these conditions, why would a winemaker want to get into business with the monks of New Clairvaux? I like the challenge. Amy Sinceri's family has been making wine in Napa and other parts of California for five generations. If you can make good wines in Vina, you gotta be really good at your craft. Better than Leland Stanford. 
In the late 1800s, the railroad baron had the world's largest vineyard here, but he just didn't make very tasty wine. Today's efforts benefit from modern technology and science, but Sinceri has a different challenge. The monks pray seven times a day. She says working around their schedule is worth it. I really love working with the brothers. They fulfill something in my life. You know, they've got some core values that I hope rub off on me. You won't find new Clairvaux wine at your grocery store. It sells out online and in the tasting room. Well, now you get a sneak peek of the 13. Absolutely. Tonight, 250 people drive out for a tasting party in the old brick wine cellar Stanford built. How are you this evening? <laughs> a few monks pour wine for guests like Roland Resendez. He's a member of their wine club. Just the idea of the Abbey and the association with the Sensuri family just makes it a great experience. But he isn't just here for the setting or the novelty of being served wine by monks. I have to tell you, it's outstanding. The star of the party is a sweet dessert wine called Angelica. It's also what the brothers and the public drink at mass here. The abbot, Father Paul Mark, jokes... I'd like to think we've had an increased devotion in the precious blood of the Lord (laughs) at Mass now. Then we get serious. I ask, isn't there something almost paradoxical about creating a separate sacred space and then inviting people in? There is a tension there, but if we see it in the context of, of our mission as Cistercian monks, Well, it's witnessing who we are and what our life is about. At the tasting room and winery parties. However we support ourselves, at the heart of it really is doing things for the glory of God. And that's a pretty high standard. For the California Report, I'm Lisa Morehouse in Vina. Before we wrap up our parade of California cocktails, we've got the perfect dessert drink, an Irish coffee. It's four parts coffee, a couple sugar cubes, two parts whiskey, and it's all topped with heavy cream. And one of the best-known places to get one is at the Buena Vista in San Francisco. It's a corner bar right in front of a cable car turnaround, and it's often thought of as the birthplace of this drink. But is that true? Our friends at the Bay Curious podcast Kelly O'Mara and Olivia Allen Price checked it out in this story we first aired in 2019. We headed into the back room at the Buena Vista to learn how Irish coffee ended up here. It was not originated in San Francisco. So my name is Leah, and I've been a waitress at the Buena Vista for 14 years. That's right. The Buena Vista doesn't actually claim they invented the drink. But they do have a tale about how two San Franciscans made it popular in America. Leah sets the scene. It was 1952, and it was a a dark and stormy night, November 10th to be exact. And the owner of the Buena Vista at the time, his name was Jack Kepler, and he was behind the bar. And sitting at the bar was a fellow named Stanton Delaplane. Stanton Delaplane is very well known in the San Francisco Bay Area. He was a travel writer. Well, look who it is, Stanton Delaplane, 
deadline time at the Chronicle? Another day, another deadline. I've traveled far, old Jack. Pour me a martini, will you? Not one of them Irish drinks you keep writing about? Gaelic coffee? Ah, if only. No one makes them like the Irish. I could. I tell you. Just coffee, whiskey, and cream. Simple. No, no. I cannot speak any higher of the Irish coffee. The real trick is to make the cream float. They tried it. They tried different glasses. They tried different whiskeys. They tried everything they could think of. The cream kept falling down to the bottom. I don't know how many more of these I can drink, Jack. Never heard a newspaper man complain about too much drink. But this cream ain't right. Keep sinking. What are we doing wrong? I guess you'll have to fly to that airport in Ireland. <laughs> Ask for the cook, Joe Sheridan. I just might. Kepler got so obsessed with this, he actually flew to Ireland, met Joe Sheridan, who was the fellow who was not the bartender at Foynes at the time, but worked in the kitchen, and uh, asked him, how did he get his cream to float? What kind of whiskey did he use? So first, you get a fresh, high-fat cream. The type that so Jack came back, he had perfected the Irish coffee, Stan Delaplane wrote about it in the newspaper, and all of a sudden, people were knocking on the Buena Vista door trying to get one of these authentic Irish coffees. A great tale, but there is this Irish saying that goes, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. Irish coffee was invented somewhere between 1940 and 1942 in Ireland at either one of two places. This is Eric Felton. He wrote a book on cocktails called How's Your Drink? He says there are two problems with the story of Irish coffee. For one, he's not sure about the legend of Joe Sheridan inventing the drink at the airport. It's possible that the drink was actually invented in 1940 or so at a pub called The Dolphin in, in Dublin. But Eric also isn't convinced our Stanton Delaplane was the first person to bring the drink to the U.S. The first instance that I can find of the Irish coffee coming to the U.S. is a food critic for the New York Herald Tribune, Clementine Paddleford. And for her St. Patrick's Day column in 1948, she talks up the Irish coffee, and she gives the classic recipe. It's, it's clearly the Irish coffee we know, but it is the case that it's in San Francisco that the Irish coffee really became a sensation, thanks to Stanton Delaplane. So even if Stanton Delaplane wasn't the first to write about Irish coffees, the Buena Vista definitely popularized them in America, and that's why they still serve up to 2,000 of them every day. That was Olivia Allen Price and reporter Kelly O'Mara from the Bay Curious podcast. And that's the California Report magazine for this week. Happy New Year and cheers! Whether you're drinking one of these cocktails or just a nice fizzy water or maybe some sparkling apple cider, here's to you and yours. 
The California Report magazine is a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Susie Racho is our producer-director. And our sound engineers are Seal Muller, Katie McMurrin, and Brendan Willard. Our team also includes Lisa Morehouse and MJ Johnson. I'm Sasha Coca. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions. Online or through Star One's mobile app, Star One Credit Union, in your best interest.